I went from simply making income to survive, from selling the products that I created to creating something good for the world, but then really being distracted and focusing on, you know, giving a really good return for my investors to now really describing the purpose of redemptive business as love in action, you know, to really put people at the center of everything, to care for every single stakeholder throughout the entire business as part of that mission, which then leads us to see business not as a vehicle to achieve financial wins and then to give back afterwards, but instead as one of probably the most impactful ways to actively join God in his restorative work. This is the Redemptive Edge from Praxis. On this podcast, we talk to people who are building businesses and nonprofits that look at the world differently, or we'd say redemptively. They're aiming to renew culture through acts of creative restoration. Rather than using people to advance their mission, they aim to bless people. And they're led by people who aren't living for themselves or even just seeking to improve themselves but people who aim to die to themselves so that something beautiful can happen in the world. That's the redemptive edge. It's not so much a destination where you arrive as a journey you decide to take. I'm Andy Crouch, partner for Theology and Culture at Praxis. In this episode, I want to introduce you to two of my colleagues and friends, David Blanchard and Jessica Kim. Dave is the co-founder and CEO of Praxis, so he's my boss. You've heard his voice on this podcast before. He started Praxis 10 years ago with Josh Kwan after starting several other companies himself and working at the business design firm IDEO. Jessica Nan Kim is one of our venture partners at Praxis, which means she's incredibly generous with her time with us, but she's also a serial entrepreneur on her third venture where she is co-founder and CEO which is a really remarkable app and platform for caregivers called Ionicare. In this episode, Dave and Jess are going to talk about our latest playbook, the Redemptive Business Playbook. This is one in a series that started with our rule of life for redemptive entrepreneurs and our redemptive nonprofit playbook. And fairly soon, the Redemptive Investing Playbook is on its way. We're trying to cover the whole ecosystem of entrepreneurship with these resources. And if you've ever wondered, What exactly does Praxis mean by this phrase, redemptive entrepreneurship? These playbooks are our clearest answer to that question. We've designed them to be short, succinct, print and digital summaries of years of work and active conversation and testing with our community. The actual authors of the playbooks are Praxis partners, but the insights and principles come from our heroes, the members of our community who are building redemptive ventures in the world. All of these playbooks, by the way, are available for purchase on Amazon, but you can also find the full text of each playbook through our website at praxislabs.org resources. The conversations you'll hear today come from our Praxis Academy program this summer, where Dave and Jessica are leading a course on redemptive business for more than 200 participants based on the Redemptive Business Playbook. During the opening session of Academy, Dave and Jessica talked with Praxis Chief of Staff Megan Easley about some of the playbook's first principles. There are some fundamental tensions and myths that define modern capitalism, but we believe there's a different and better way to build. 
In this conversation with Megan, Dave and Jess offer a different imagination of what business is for. What a time to be alive in this dialogue around capitalism. There are so many different perspectives. And I'd say, you know, as the playbook outlines, I think the fundamental uh, tension is actually that capitalism, you know, is, is, I think, a proven power at this point for social good. We see so much economic opportunity, people being lifted out of poverty, so many good things and, and things we experience on a daily basis coming out of capitalism. And at the same time, it's deeply entwined with its legacy of harm. We started the conversation today with Juneteenth and our history of slavery. And we think about sweatshops in our modern day world. And there's just so many exploitative ways that capitalism has been leveraged for uh, the good of single individuals and corporations. And so I I think, you know, as we think about this tension and you hear from us at Praxis, we've advanced this redemptive narrative through what I would say is a fundamentally optimistic long view uh, of of capitalism, long view especially, which I think is a common trait of entrepreneurs. I think uh, Kevin Kelly from Wired says that optimists determine the future. And, uh, you know, for all the bad in the world, I think we're continually moving an exciting way through an age of, of transparency and accountability and really a time where capital and, and talent and consumer dollars as well are interested in uh, a, at minimum, I would say, an ethical baseline. Yeah, it's so good, Dave. Thanks for sharing that. Jessica, I would love to kick it over to you and just have you give us a little bit of an imagination for how redemptive business leaders should think about the purpose of their business. Yeah, of course. As leaders and uh, believers, our whole purpose is rooted in our greatest commandment, which is to love God. And then it's from then and there that we love our neighbors, create lasting cultural products, and then to take that call seriously to be a good steward of all the you know, resources of creation, no matter what type of business or industry that you're in. And so it's interesting because I'm in, my, in the midst of you know, building my third startup all in different industries and business models. And my understanding of purpose absolutely evolved. I went from simply making income to survive from selling the products that I created to creating something good for the world, but then really being distracted and focusing on, you know, giving a really good return for my investors to now really describing the purpose of redemptive business as love in action, you know, to really put people at the center of everything to care for every single stakeholder throughout the entire business as part of that mission, which then leads us to see business not as a vehicle to achieve financial wins and then to give back afterwards, but instead as one of probably the most impactful ways to actively join God in his restorative work. Yeah, that's so good, Jessica. You have been a huge example for all of us in that. Dave, one of the things that is included in the First Principles essay for the business course really suggests that redemptive entrepreneurs need to challenge two dominant and generally unchallenged myths of business. We call these the supremacy of money, that money is the ultimate deciding factor in every business decision, and the inevitability of progress. So that development, especially the technological progress that we see is good for us. Um, Can you just briefly introduce us to each of those concepts and share an example of how they reinforce each other? I'd say, for clarity, we live in the most economically prosperous time in world history. It's not true for everyone, but in general, that's where we are. We also live in what I'll just call a mammon world. That is, you know, where power and prestige and possessions are uh, what one author calls the unholy trinity. That's how we measure success and describes it as the primary competitor to the way of the cross in the world. 
we could chew on that for hours. But I just want to emphasize, this is not just true for the secular world. It's true for virtually all of us as Christians. This idea has just infected us. Count us impressed by the multimillionaire and startup unicorn founder and so on. And these two myths that you mentioned, I think, are deeply entwined in this mammon-centric view of the world, right? The supremacy of money, it really implies that at the end of the day, money rules all. So this, you know, sometimes it's explicit and we see it explicitly. Sometimes we're like, oh, that's, you know, that's so crude or crass. But more often than not, it's hidden and it's really implicit in all decision making. And I think kind of at its core, it suggests that all discussion of social impact and care of employees and outcomes and redemptive considerations that, you know, kind of wink, wink, they're really nice to have, but they're not essential. They're the first to go if they were ever there in the first place. And what's really gnarly about that is that when that, when that's actually true, those redemptive things, uh, however they're expressed or described or, or whatnot, are actually just an exploitative mechanism to win more in a changing environment that I described as, you know, oh, well, we, we need to fight for talent and capital and consumers, so we're going to say the right things and pretend like we care about these things. But at the end of the day, we're just calculating that, you know, it's the money that wins. The second one, the inevitability of progress, I think could be an equally common risk for what I'll call the ethical Christian. Here, I think, uh, you know, we assume that whether it's in technology or otherwise, that if we're building something, as long as it's kind of like not vice related, it's good and even virtuous. And we're good people for building and just, you know, as long as we're creating jobs, creating wealth, these are generally good activities. And the risk in that and the trick in that is actually it allows us to take a blind eye to what economists call negative externalities. So this thought that when you put something into the world, there's negative things that are not priced into that activity. We have obvious examples of that in particular industries, but it's really across everything. You know, I think uh, Andy said in his book, Culture Making, that for most of us, the unintended consequences of what we make are greater than the intended consequences, which is a, a sobering, uh, not paralyzing, but a sobering fact. And I think the more we're considering the impacts of what we're making outside of our small bubble, the more we can avoid this just kind of belief that whatever we're making is a positive thing in the world. Awesome. Thanks, Dave. Um, Jessica, I'll give it to you for this last question. Just want to be able to have a chance to hear from you what a vision for creative restoration through sacrifice might look like when it's lived out in the business sector. You know, thinking about the impact of redemptive business and what that could do just gets me so passionate and fired up. Because when you really think about it, you know, business is built into the fabric of how our entire world operates. The way we communicate, the way we learn, the way we eat, right? The work, and even the way we care for one another has been shaped by businesses, you know, my current venture, as you mentioned, is Ionicare. It's a support platform for family caregivers. And it was interesting when we realized that the reason why family caregivers are completely unsupported and overlooked today is because they have been left out of that financial and operational equation of how healthcare is delivered, which is driven by businesses. And so, you know, what we're doing at Ionicare is really trying to restore you know, how care systems incorporate all the care that's happening in the home, even if it's at a bigger challenge for us to prove it out on a financial basis. And so when we think about creative restoration through sacrifice, I think the opportunities are so great to really impact our culture. And they're really around these three major things. You know, one is like rather than exploiting trends and human behaviors for personal gain or cultural advancement, we would take those insights 
to create products and services that renew culture and making that the, the true purpose to be more humanizing, truthful, God glorifying and lasting. And so what that means is at the earliest stages of coming up with even your idea or your model or how it's going to reach people, we would consider the long-term cultural impact at scale of what we are creating today, even if it's at the cost of advancement or progress or traction now. And then I think too, operations would look really different. We would strive to operate in a way that really blesses people and like actually say it that way, you know, from the business model to supply chain to fundraising and partnerships, like people would not be viewed as um, resources or assets to extract from to gain most profit, but instead we make profit to impact people at the end of the day, that's really what counts the most. And then lastly, leadership um, is, you know, we would define it differently. And it's instead of leadership being rooted in power and self-advancement, we would see leaders operating literally as an outflow of their own pursuit of God. So their motives, their worldview, imagination, practices of dying to self makes them more surrendered and accountable and rested and generous. And as we say those things, I recognize that it is hard to do, um, but it is what we strive for. And I think the key thing after spending so much time within the Praxis community that will have changed, like even how I operate as an entrepreneur, is that ventures can only be as redemptive as the leaders leading them, right? And so the core of all of this work has to start with this very personal pursuit and relationship with God. And that's, that's the vision that we hold on to. Later in the 2021 Praxis Academy, Dave and Jessica took their course participants through the Redemptive Business Playbook section on one of the most distinctive aspects of startup life today, especially startups that are consumer-oriented, which is brand. Brand and branding occupy so much attention as you're building a business. And this is just one area of business that we think needs redemptive reimagining. We also talk in the playbook about product culture, business model, partnerships, ambition, but brand is a really crucial area. And for each of these areas, we begin with a section we call our reality, the truth about the exploitative patterns that surround us and often are within us. But then we center each area of the playbook on the redemptive opportunities we see, a few specific practices that can start to push back and reshape the existing reality. And we end each section with good news, the hope that drives our ambition and our creativity. I love uh, the statement of overall purpose that frames the section on brand in the playbook. Here's how it reads. We craft a brand through imagination and truth, advancing narratives of virtue and hope across our venture's sphere of influence. We resist the urge to play to our customers' desires, insecurity, or ego through marketing based on fear or status. So let's jump in as Dave and Jessica talk about this, and they start by highlighting our reality, how brands actually function and sometimes malfunction in our world today. I'll take us through this, our reality section a little bit. And I think before I do that too, I'd love to just say that I I think a couple things are always in play when we talk about brand in my mind. One is that no matter what stage you're at, this is so important. If you're at the earlier days, you are really setting the foundation for the language, logos, expressions, experiences, all of these things that basically are a, a kaleidoscope of brand or how people see you. And then as companies grow, 
their opportunity to spend against those origination narratives really increases. They have big ad budgets and they're uh, they're taking on bigger things that's trying to say about the world and people are listening to them more. They recognize the brand as standing for something. Those things are so interconnected. So wherever you're kind of meeting us, whatever brand you're a part of, maybe it's a company you join, it's really important to even interrogate the brand, I think, a little bit and say, okay, what, what are we saying? And the other side of this, we're better or worse. When we talk about brand, we're talking about the consumer or customer, particularly in the consumer brand space, right? Where the individual today has often been said, they, they actually relate to the world through the brands they most often consume. Now that's problematic at its core because we're supposed to just relate to the Lord. That's where our identity comes from. But also in a pragmatic sense, if we're trying to do good things with brands, it is helpful to think about how connected individuals can become to a community or a story and how important it is that that story is true. And then finally, I think anytime we talk about brand, we are fundamentally telling them something small or large about the good life, which in the philosophical traditions is kind of the grand conversation of what is the good life anyways. And I think our businesses, again, particularly in the consumer space, but really uh, across the board, have something to say about the good life. And of course, that's connected to redemptive business in general, as we think about the whole organization. I often think about Apple's decision, which was brilliant from a marketing perspective, to put this small eye in front of most of our products. And what does it mean that this is not uh, Android or, or anything else, it's an iPhone. It's, it's, it's about me and who I am. And that connection to identity is something they have leaned into heavily. And I think, frankly, iPhones, iPads, these have all shaped our society in a way that we maybe don't even see completely. So anyways, at the heart of every business, there's some story like that. Sometimes it's speaking directly to an issue. Sometimes it's, uh, it's just talking about a customer pain point. Over time, I think what's really powerful is how much these things don't only speak to the consumer, but also start to galvanize our internal organization. The people who I am so thankful are on the Praxis team have joined our brand as something that we are trying to advance in the world. And, you know, the that's a really powerful thing. Of course, the challenge with it is that my temptation or our temptation might be not to just tell a good story about what the world is, but actually do this, this myth-making that we talk about in the playbooks, which is for, the temptation is to say, well, if we can sell a, tell a small story and sell a small story, we should sell a huge one. And I think that's frankly where a lot of polarization comes from in the world, where a lot of disenchantment comes in the world, where people interact with something and it turns out the gap between what it is what, what it actually is and what they said it was is so grand and different. And I think we as entrepreneurs and, and organizational leaders and people who have a stake in that are also tempted to exaggerate the possibilities for the sake of raising capital and for the sake of getting talent to join the team that might not otherwise if it didn't feel so meaningful and so purposeful. And the sad part of this is it's actually, I think, turned into a bit of a parody, this idea with WeWork where they were like, we are changing the future of how people work in the world. I mean, what a grand statement that is. And of course, we found out that the business model wasn't even there to host how people worked in that moment, and that it was actually built on the messianic fantasy of, of Adam Newman, 
the, the founder who, by telling that story, often to the biggest investors in the world, like those at SoftBank, was able to galvanize resources for a pretty long time horizon that ultimately fell off a cliff. And uh, you talked to some people who worked at, at, uh, at WeWork, and they felt like they had been promised a version of the good life through this thing that turned out to have a really deep abyss to it. And so how do we respond to that as believers who are trying to do redemptive business, again, in maybe small ways or in big ways? Well, that's where we, I think, you know, have to long for this classical way of thinking about what uh, the good, true, and the beautiful look like in the world. And how do we convey this possibility of, of real good uh, here on earth, but also recognizing that no brand will fulfill that deepest longing inside of our hearts that we identify. And so, Jessica, talking to you, I think you have been extremely thoughtful about this. But when you were naming your venture, which isn't the total brand, you stepped in with with clarity on what what you were trying to do. So everyone who interacted with it understood more about that. Can you talk about the not just the naming, but actually how that may even start to shape someone's vision of the good life? Oh yeah, for sure. No, I loved your opening comments, and I think you know even after three ventures in very different industries. What I've realized, I personally went through that progression of thinking that it was just the logo, honestly, when I was in my 20s during my first business. And I was like, oh, this is what it looks good. It looks cute. Yeah, that makes sense. And then as I realized, as we built these different ventures, especially now and I'm applying this, this power of brand, you know, you talked about the narrative we want to tell. And you touched upon, I think, what is the most important thing that we have to steward as believers of building these ventures and brands is that it really impacts the person's identity. So, yeah, with Ionic Care, you know, it comes directly from that narrative we want to tell. Caregiving is something that's going to impact every single one of us, but it can be a very hidden experience, which is mm. very isolating on yeah. so many levels. The people that we care for tend to be the elderly, people who have chronic conditions or are going through some kind of illness. And so they're often overlooked in our culture because our culture has become so hyper-focused on productivity and achievement. And if you can't contribute you know, to that, it's almost like there's no place for you. And so when we looked at the overall culture around caregiving, our name is based on the I-A-N-A of Ionicare, stands for I am not alone. And, you know, that is the ultimate anchor of which we just build every interaction with end users, customers, buyers, builders, all of that. And we really see it as going beyond caregiving alone and that support. You know, we want to redefine how we kind of care and live and work, reminding us that as humans, we were built to be in community right? That God created us where we need each other, not only in the high moments that we post on social media, but in the hardest, darkest moments of vulnerability. And, you know, our culture has gone so far away from that in showing that vulnerability and that we see that can we push and go from individualism and isolation and move into a very intergenerational love you know, openly sharing when we need help and that we can actually really show up for each other. And so Dave, I think, you know, as we work through this, you've often asked me this question that I would ask everyone here listening is, you know, if your venture were to grow at scale, what does it look like? Because I think that's how we, you know, build that thread. Like what would your brand have to say about the world? How would it shape it? Right. And so for Mm -hmm. us, we cannot promise a cure, 
you know, we are not promising an answer to all the complex family dynamics that come up. And we're not saying that this is an easy pill to take to get rid of grief, right? We know that that's part of kind of humanity. But what we can ensure and what we are trying to do is to say that you don't need to be alone in it, right? That you don't need to be alone in your thoughts and your feelings and your journey. And that's really what we're rooting our brand and every interaction. And to your point, your brand impacts both internally what's important as well as externally what you're saying is important. So as we go into, you know, the redemptive opportunities, you know, the first one I think really speaks to that. So we thoughtfully maximize our opportunity to rewrite a cultural narrative, particularly in categories where exploitative messages or products have been normalized and there's a need to expose harm, recapture truth or shift expectations. I love the way this is written because it's saying that your brand is actually going from something to something else because you're trying to redeem something in the world, right? And yeah. so similar to our product features, there are no oh. neutral clicks. There are no neutral aspects. You're either right. contributing to those messages or you're changing them. And so Dave, when we say rewrite cultural narrative, what comes to mind for you? Can you expand a little on that? Yeah, I mean, there's a ton that could be said here. Of course, the thing that comes top of mind actually is a fellow of ours Jonas Paul Eyewear, Ben and Laura Harrison's venture, they had a child who was born blind, had 22 surgeries to try to recover some eyesight. As they were thinking about raising Jonas, realized that children's eyewear is so stigmatized. Like we have this like bully culture around children's eyewear. And then when you're 18 years old, everybody wants to get Warby Parkers. And so what Ben and Laura said is we're going to rewrite this cultural narrative around eyewear for elementary school students with beautiful fashion forward eyewear. And they started off creating the glasses by hand in their own studio. Now they're distributed across Walmarts across the country. And so when a young child walks into the eyewear section, they're like, I would look good in those. The third graders and fourth graders who walk in confidently into their classroom, instead of being ashamed of the optometrist meeting they just had that has kind of changed their look. That's a rewriting of a cultural narrative that we can get behind. Of course, it's all connected to this brand hyperbole I kind of talked about, right? Where you could have a Ben and Laura who are like, you know, changing children's lives around the world or whatever. Like there's a way that they can hype that up that then, of course, as you said, there's no cure. You, You can't do particular things. Can you talk about how you're figuring out or how you think about this idea of brand promise and how that being a true reflection of what can happen? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm actually also seeing that that's a lot of what people are wondering about. And I think that there's a fine line between hopeful vision and today's promise. So much of brand is aspirational, right? Like if you're trying to move from one thing to another and shift this narrative, you are trying to shift it to something that doesn't quite exist yet. On top of that, entrepreneurs and builders, we believe it. We believe in that. Like we see it, we taste it. It's tangible to us. And that's why we're so dedicated. But I also think that's why it's up to us to clearly communicate how our brand can deliver today without over-promising what we hope it delivers. The way that, you know, I've kind of rooted myself in that in building the brand is really focusing on today's truth, a truth that will resonate, like sharing the reality. So we share caregiver stories as it is today, where uh-huh. we don't only share stories that have happy endings or, and then uh-huh. look what this did and look what our solution did. We say, we have a lot of stories where it's like, it's still in progress. And, you know, that resonates 
But then to move over and bridge over to what you want it to be, it's more inspiring people to join you in the mission as opposed to promising the mission. So it's like, this is what it is today. What could it be? What would we want? Let's do this together. We don't have all the answers. We can't solve it all. We actually need you to join us in that. And we want to hear from you. And that's kind of how we've bridged it without over-promising. We actually are vulnerable and say, this is what we know, but this is what we don't know. Come join us. Yeah, I think about this next one and, and that connection to that, where we talk about basing our eternal narratives or our narratives in an eternal understanding of identity and worth, which I love. My board chair here practice, Kirk Hellhacker, always reminds me that people are uh, eternal, ventures are temporal. And if we treat our brands that way, I think that's that's appropriate. You've done that, I think, at Ionicare, even by decentering the organization as the hero and putting the focus on eternal people. Can you talk about that quickly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we put, as you said, communities at the center and our intentional goal and on our product meetings and marketing meetings, we say it is not about us. We actually want to be in that background. Our goal is where our caregivers and users say, it's not Ionicare showed up for me. We don't want that. We say, my people showed up for me. Sarah showed up for me. Dave, you showed up for me. And so we do that both in product design as well as what we feature, the words we use, You know how often we put the brand right in front of your face. Even phrases that we say is success for us. We don't put Ionicare in there. We want the communities to really show up for each other. I can so- really relate to that. You know, I would say like, I think beyond the favor we've gotten at practice, one of the core cultural components that have has been so key for our team in our community is the elevation of entrepreneurs like you as we we think you're the hero we're not the heroes of redemptive entrepreneurship that are, are taking it forward in the world but the the entrepreneur has always we said fellows first and so uh, I think that's that creates that culture uh, as, as we think about brand and internal dynamics going into this next one you know we ensure that our brand story runs on contentment over consumerism, over superstition, interdependence, over individualism, hope over wishful thinking, wisdom over fear, and freedom over compulsion. And it's kind of what we talked about, like brands evoke this desire. And it's easy for us to want to gain traction by what we present ourselves. But what does this mean around like contentment over consumerism? I've been thinking about this one for a while. There's a guy, Kenya Hara, he wrote this book, Designing Design. He's the creative director for a brand called Muji. You know, he, he talks in this book, he has a chapter called The Re-Education of Desire. Muji actually means no brand and none of their products have any brand on them. But there's something really powerful in that because we are convinced that the capitalistic system is supposed to create desire and provoke desire and, and dry it up so that we can monetize it in a way. And we're, I think, contented in those systems a lot of times. Instead, they, they tried to create a set of products that they said would satisfy people. So they wouldn't say, I've got two of these things. I need to get 10 of them or I need to have all of the things in the store here. But a simple beauty that allows us to, uh, to focus even, I would take it a step farther on the creator and the greatest beauty in the world and not find ourselves locked into this kind of material world that convinces us that if we buy one more thing, we'll be satisfied. It's hard to figure out how to navigate that because you do need to stand out. You do need to communicate what you're doing. I know a car dealer down in uh, North Carolina who's about 60 dealerships who regularly rejects advertising from BMW and Porsche at his dealership because they are trying to tell someone that their midlife crisis is going to be solved through the purchase of a vehicle. And he wants those ads not on the lot. 
it's a pretty powerful pushback. Yeah, because that I mean that is powerful because that is again putting my marketing hat on. You think about what is that desire that's a trigger point to say, oh, you can solve that and I can buy that. And so to fight against it is a real tension, I have to say. You know, it's like, is it based on manipulation or is it based on truth? And is it based in their flourishing or is it based on the purchasing? Right. And so those are the things that you can answer rightly in your heart to see whether an advertising message is accurate or not. Well, and you know, part of that, of course, is that we take the biggest cues, I think, visually, almost implicitly from who is represented and what that like what the good life looks like. I often will talk about a Louis Vuitton ad that has Sean Connery on a dock on a private island soaking wet while he's in a turtleneck in the hot summer sun. There's like all these contrasts that are working at play here. And you're like, oh, I think if I buy that Louis Vuitton bag, I could be James Bond. That's the like implication that's being drawn out. And I think it's kind of related to this next one where, you know, we're actually, okay, carefully considering whose voices, faces, stories, experiences are representing our brand. And how do you think about that one? And who's a part of the brand that we're representing? Yeah. I mean, I have to say that, you know, depending on your industry or category, I just want to acknowledge that there are different tensions there, right? Like fashion versus, you know, caregiving versus like a product. And that we can only break down if we really dig into each venture. But just wanted to acknowledge that that's not so simple to do and that you have to see what the current narrative is. But in general, what I would love to see in brand is instead of projecting kind of what you want to see, represent what is actually happening, Mm, mm, who they are. And it's always rooted in who are you serving and, you know, how do you connect best with them? We all know representation matters, right? I am seeing things change a bit in that, at least desire to do that. You're building a brand to serve people. Do you want to share that narrative in representation actually takes more time, could be more costly, but it is that dedication to represent who you're serving. You know, initially we actually read all the stats and the demographics to understand, you know, who our market is as a whole. And then the people that we connected with initially was from Instagram. Like I saw people sharing about caregiving on Instagram, connected with them. They became our initial advocates. And I was kind of in that tension of like, okay, I want to make sure we have diversity here. But then what I realized is that there's so many people who aren't sharing publicly about this, right? And they're not posting and they're all hidden. And so I think it's always looking at, you know, not what's easy, but really digging in and knowing your customers and knowing people that you're serving and then saying, how do we represent even the people that aren't as visible? So it does take more dedication, but I think it, you know, that's kind of what we're called to do. I love that. And and the I think dedication, even the discipline of communication is a really critical mm-hmm. part of all this. And you know, I think we like we landed in this last one, which is just say, okay, let's just go out as we do these things, be truthful, be gracious with all the people in our communities. Let's acknowledge failure when we do it. Let's not try to spread blame and let's celebrate others as often as we can. When we do all these things different practices and, we're, and we're, we're working through them. I wonder as you read the good news part of this, where do you think this all lands and what's the hope for us with redemptive branding? I think it's really well written that in some of these phrases, this is the area of the business in which we have the greatest opportunity to demonstrate that one of our ultimate products is trust. I think it really is the core, Um, you know, reveling in what our offering actually does, you know, helps us really resist 
that temptation to hook our brand with these inflated promises. And so, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think brand is not what you tell them. So you can do all this planning and writing and get copywriters and everything like that. But it's what people ultimately feel and understand and what you ignite in their heart and in their identity. And so to go on that deep level, no matter what you do, is going to get you you know, on the path of being more redemptive in that brand creation. I love this last idea that brands at their best can ignite something in our hearts, that they can awaken aspiration in the best sense. This is the redemptive edge of brand. Just one of six major areas where we think business can be redesigned for the better. We'd love for you to experience this whole playbook. And again, it's available for free in digital form through praxislabs.org slash resources. It's also available in print at Amazon. We think these playbooks are best read and processed with other people. And we actually do this as a Praxis team with both our rule of life and our redemptive nonprofit playbook. We read one section at a time and use it to help us assess the strengths and the weaknesses and the possibilities of our own life and our work together. You might want to go through all six areas of the business playbook with a few other people at your company and then choose one or two areas where you feel the greatest energy and possibility and start designing your own creative ways to approach the redemptive edge of your venture's mission. Thanks so much to David Blanchard and to Jessica Kim for teaching our Academy course on redemptive business this summer. Thanks to Scott Kaufman and Hannah Bake for their incredible work on the playbook and also on this podcast. And thank you for joining us on The Redemptive Edge. Mm -hmm.